All right. So I decided to do something um, that fit into the topic that we've already hit pretty hard this year, which is hunger. Uh, what I really wanted to investigate is, uh, and we've we've talked about it from one other direction uh, in terms of just meal planning, but I wanted to see how different variables, how things that we may not have really looked at together as a group, how they actually segue into the creation of hunger. So I, I found something that I initially, after going through the entire study, spending hours kind of breaking it down, I almost said, ah, eh, this isn't worthwhile. This isn't that big of a deal and moved on to something else. But then I looked at it again and I thought, no, this is really kind of foundational. There, there's a super, super good lesson here. So I'm going to show you guys a couple things at the end that I think really tie into some very skillful life learning lessons on any kind of behavior change. But what I want to start out by doing is showing you exactly how the brain creates hunger, creates the sensation of hunger, how we perceive it, how our brain gives it the meaning of different levels of intensity. And then as I prompted a little bit in my post, how we can therefore potentially change it. Uh, and so there really is some cool stuff here. Uh, let, me, let me get right in. Two of the hardest classes I ever took, it was actually four classes, uh, was part of a pre-med allied health physical therapy degree. And it was, an, it, was, it was neuroanatomy and neurophysiology, just some of the hardest stuff you could ever learn. And that's why neurosurgeons make the big bucks. But I'm going to go through some things here that we're not going to really dwell on, but I think just their sheer complexity will, will, number one, show you why it's a big deal, but number two, show you why it's important to figure out at least what can serve us with our lives and our goals. So this particular study, uh, it, number one, it was published in uh, the Journal of Obesity, which is a, a preeminent nutrition um, you know, journal, a lot, a lot of great research there. But they did fMRI studies and backup PET scan studies because they both look at things a little bit differently in the brain. And what they wanted to do is, of course, with that kind of imaging, look in real time at what's happening in the brain. What parts of the brain are being stimulated when you, when you give somebody certain cues trying to elicit hunger and how does that compare in a couple different contexts? So um, let, me, let me just kind of read their, their right out of the gate initial stated objective. To explore the neuroanatomical sites of eating behavior, we've developed a simple functional magnetic resonance imaging paradigm to image hunger versus satiety using visual stimulation. Though the way they put this together, well, first of all, before I get to the methods, uh, this is something they ended with. So I gave you their very, very first premise statement. And then I, I want to read to you what they said at the very end after presenting the entire study. With the progress made in neuroanatomical imaging and the discovery and the applicability of endocrine tools that modulate calorie intake, we believe that a translation molecular and animal-based concept of satiety control into human physiology and pathophysiology will be an elementary step toward the development of novel strategies for prevention and treatment of obesity. So 
what they're saying is, number one, this kind of study is in its infancy. There haven't been a lot of studies done like this. And they took a very unique angle toward what they did. And, and they consider it uh, a good step in the chain toward, toward creating some, as they said, novel strategies. But remember what we talked about if, if you were here when we were going over the, the insulin and glucose blood sugar theory of hunger is all of hunger premised just on changing blood sugar? Is it hormonal when you get into the, the neural gastric loop? leptin, ghrelin, uh, it's, you know, all of those impacts, blood sugar levels, all of those impacts on the hypothalamus in the brain and how that controls hunger. Then we got into looking at uh, just how to manage hunger for sustainability, some mindfulness and some, some biofeedback mechanisms. They're, they're not touching any of that on the application side. These researchers looked foundationally at just where it's happening in the brain. And if we can recognize and compare why it's happening there, maybe we can change that. So yes, everything I just described is important. Blood sugar levels, all that mindfulness and, and the kind of work that you do on a behavioral basis, uh, all of those hormones, uh, that, that mesolimbic system and dopamine and memory coding for hunger and so forth, that's all there. But might there be a better way to control it by simply looking at neuroplasticity, looking at how you control it in your brain? Can your brain even change itself? Can you change it to therefore control all those mechanisms of hunger so that by just kind of autopilot, you don't get the same outcomes you might usually do? You don't crumble into binges. You don't feel hunger in the same way. So uh, again, I, I had to really read through this over and over and over again to, to get at what I think is most important. Uh, one of the limitations of the study is they only had 12 subjects, um, probably just you know based on who was doing the studies. I know grad students and so forth who, who do a lot of these things, you know, kind of pioneer the study or, or put it forth with professors and in, in committees and so forth for school, um, you know, it is what it is. You don't always have a million different subjects, but they had 12 lean, healthy males. And uh, by healthy, the BMI was, was pretty, pretty lean and normal. They were young, average age, 26 and a half. Um, so I'm not sure that matters. You know, you have 12 young male, healthy brains, and this is what we're looking at. Um, perhaps though, it would be different if you had people who were obese, people who were genetically disposed to obesity, uh, maybe a cross section. You know, these are, these are some of those studies that could come after to really bifurcate out a little bit more meaning. Um, but nonetheless, I think you're going to see that they came up with some really good conclusions. The way they did this study, they want, they did three things. Uh, you know, first of all, they, they had these subjects fast for 12 hours, I'm sorry, 14 hours. At the end of 14 hours, they applied the intervention, which I'll explain in a second. Then after that was all done, you know, days later, weeks later, it just sometime when it was, it was safe to, to make sure there was no crossover, 
they did a uh, a one hour eat all you want pizza meal. And then after that, now these subjects were sated instead of being hungry from a 14 hour fast. Now they were full and they repeated the exact same test with the fMRI and, and PET scans. So what they were doing in this visual context, which I'm going to, they even noted something that was pretty, pretty cool and, and a, an actual specific reason. I, I well, the first time I read through this, I thought, well, gosh, there's, there's actually kind of a cool application point here. They may not even have intended to do that, but then reading later, they, they kind of did. They had 50 food and 50 non-food pictures. And what they would do is they would show these pictures for 45 seconds. So like a food picture, you have to look at that for 40 seconds. Then to kind of wash out your, your frame of mind, so to speak, they would have them do 30 seconds of an intentional task. Like, hey, play this little memory game or read this poem or something. And then they would just kind of rest for 15 seconds and then they would do the next picture. So that way, again, it's, you're not thinking of that last thing you did. So the, the total test took about uh, 31 minutes. Um, but the, the point that I thought was kind of interesting here is when they were looking at what's happening in the brain when you just look at a photo, what I initially thought of is we know that your brain cannot differentiate between what you are looking at and what you are thinking of. And this, this is important to me as an application point. I don't know if, uh, if you guys will think this is a big deal or not, but, but consider this. Once again, what you think and what you see, your brain can't tell the difference. That's why we are so good at self-delusion. That's why we are so good at believing what we want to believe and not the facts presented to us. It's why hypnosis is possible. It's why mass delusion is possible. It's why believing in things that have zero evidence is possible. It's why having an imaginary friend is possible because we are, again, we create these things. Um, makes me even think of kind of lucid dreaming. Have you guys ever been kind of in between sleep and wakefulness and you you have this weird dream, it's so vivid. Then you wake up and you go right back in it. And then you're kind of aware that you're dreaming, but you're still in it and so forth. Like that's, again, your brain creates this reality. And there are times sometimes when I'm doing that, when I'm literally like, I think I'm there, like I'm seeing this, I'm feeling this is really happening. And then I realize, and even having a conversation, then I realize, oh wait, my eyes are closed. And I open my eyes, like I'm conscious, I'm awake yet I'm still in that state as if it's real. Anyway, that's why this is so strong and credible as a study. Because if you visualize a food, this is a really weird picture. I don't know. I, I don't know if they actually gave them like black and white. That, that looks like a sandwich of some sort. Um, you know, it seems like if you're going to do something like this, it would be like real food porn, like an Applebee's commercial with like chocolate fudge just dripping down in 4K. Maybe it is. They just gave a couple examples. But we, we, get, we get very, very solid, credible responses 
from a visual stimulation. They have done studies like this with real food, where you put real food in front of somebody. They on purpose wanted these to be visual stimuli. Um, I shouldn't say on purpose. I, I think it was cool. You know, I, I'm going to say that it intentionally shows how effective our mind is, because if we can if we can have the same kind of stimulation just from a food we're imagining, that gives a lot of credence to the fact that through neuroplasticity and mindfulness, we can teach our brains to not have the same reaction that we would by seeing this stimulus. And I'll give you an example. Anybody who has ever dieted, and I talked to a, a young lady last night about this, somebody who's trying to lose weight, and I said, I know you've lost weight in the past two or three times. You've lost a pretty good amount of weight. You've gained it back. When you were doing that, when you were on your game and you were losing weight, how would you eat? And more importantly, why was it easy for you to eat that way? And not so much maybe now. Why would you give that up? And she said, you know, I don't know. You just kind of get into that zone. You do your meal prep and you've got those good foods right there, the healthier foods, and you get in that habit and you just do it. And I think without even realizing it, you know, she was slowly through that frame of neuroplasticity, gradually changing her mindset to say that these are the foods I want. This looks good to me. This tastes good. And habit by habit, meal by meal, you know, that becomes your new reality. And, and that's literally what our, our goals are. That's, that's kind of a form of good self-delusion because will a salad ever taste better than a hot fudge sundae? I don't think so. But if I make myself believe that and I encode those memories with my own health values, then my brain thinks so then my brain starts to ignore those things. That doesn't look good to me. That's not what I want. Pretty soon you don't even think about it. You just ignore certain things and you, you're, you gravitate toward the things you want. By the way, as you're looking at this picture, you can see the non-food stimulus. That's like an old-fashioned ruler, like tape measure. So again, they, they wanted things to be anything but food uh, when you're on a non-food piece of stimuli. Um, I want to make sure I didn't skip through. Another slide here real quick. Um, okay. All right, so these are the things I'm going to skip through, but I'm going, to, I'm going to give you some brief notes. The three things they wanted to look at. First of all, before you read through some of these neuroanatomical terms, just look at the, the uh, headers here. Hunger versus satiety. What's happening in these brains just based on the fact that they had undergone the 14-hour fast or they had just eaten all they wanted to eat pizza. You know, what parts of the brain are significantly different in, in that stimulation when they're looking at these photos? Then they wanted to look at food versus non-food. So you have the context, which is I'm either really hungry because I've been fasting for 14 hours or I'm not hungry at all. Now with those same two contexts, I'm looking at food versus non-food. And then when you overlay those two things together in a statistical analytical framework, the other things come out in terms of the actual differences, the parts of the brain that are, that are different. Um, oops, let me go the other direction. 
So I'm going to just point out a couple things that may be interesting to you just as a casual look here. The, the, the main parts of the brain, they, they list all these tiny, tiny little structures, but the, the big areas that come up in this study, when you look at like the orbitofrontal cortex, so when you look at things like the orbitofrontal cortex, that's obviously visual. So you're looking at pictures, you're going to have part of the vision part of your brain. Um, different <clears throat> different uh, temporal and parietal lobes on the side of your brain, that has a lot to do with just coordinating movement in your brain, like where are these, these thoughts going? Uh, you know, hippocampus connections are there. It also kind of transitions into your, your, your motor cortex. But uh, so there's so a couple things you should see kind of on both because you're just visually analyzing a picture. But you get into, um, you know, food versus non-food. Look how much this list grows. Look at all these things on the, the beginning of the left side, you know, the posterior singular or cingulate cortex, the insula. Uh, those are parts that have to do with, with driving you toward a motivational behavior. Specifically, uh, you, you're probably familiar with this because it's really a hot topic in social psych, a lot of pop culture conversations with like disgust. So the insula, the cingulate cortex, uh, when it comes to food, think of, think of being in nature. Uh, like as I watch my grandson at 17 months, like everything he sees, he wants to taste. And uh, he's, he's looking for something that tastes sweet or salty or good. Is this food? Is this not food? And your brain evolutionarily has that wiring in there to know, oh my gosh, that's disgusting. That tastes like a poison. And that's a gustatory reflex where we're disgusted by that. And just as a little side note, we also use that same part of our brain. This is why it's such a big conversational topic in, in political science and culture these days. We, we treat each other through that, like not just the food we eat, but the people we see. Uh, the reason we have in-group and out-group bias, the reason we, we other eyes uh, people different than us is because we learn to look at other people that we fear as threats, as different than us. And you can learn to hate those people for no reason, just because of their race or their religion or their political affiliation. Oh, I hate those people. You're stimulating, if you're in an fMRI, you're stimulating the same thing here with food. So you either love those people, even though you don't know them, you just love them because they have the same label as you or you hate them. Same thing with food. You learn to love certain things just based on the associations. So that's a huge part of this is, is, is that, that either I love this or I'm disgusted by this reflex. Then you have, again, some of the other things over here. Uh, the cerebellum, the, the, the thalamus and hypothalamus, which is going to really control. Uh, remember, that's kind of like the quarterback of the brain. That's going to control whether we move towards something or away from something. We've talked about this a lot, the hypothalamus role in hunger. Um, the, the cerebellum, so that's movement. It's like, you know, even just sitting there looking at a picture, our cerebellum can be, uh, you know, on call, so to speak. Because we're again, we're going to move toward or move away from something, and that's, so that's starting to engage movement. But anyway, just just showing you that once you get into the food versus non-food pictures, this is where the brain goes crazy 
and starts going in different directions to differentiate what's happening there, what you're going to actually do with that. Then when it comes to the hunger versus satiety and those different foods, this is where we get the amygdala back in the game, which is threat or non-threat. So you're making kind of a value judgment. Um, you're also, you know, back into the, the cingulate, which is, am I yeah. disgusted by this or am I, am I, you know, going to move toward this? And so all of that, just to say that those are the, probably if, if I could divide it into three sections, it's the prefrontal cortex, the, the cingulate region where you're looking at disgust or, or, you know, real attraction, then you're having all the coordinated patterns with your limbic system, which includes memory and so forth. So this is where we're going to have a chance to talk about neuroplasticity. And then the, the actual hypothalamus, which is really driving hunger or, or not hunger. So there's, there's a lot of stuff like that uh, in this study that uh, is, is I, they actually, to be honest with you, they didn't even go into it that much. I think they just realized there aren't a lot of people who are going to read the Journal of Obesity from that neuroscience perspective. But I thought some of that stuff was kind of interesting Would and, and you guys could connect it to other things we've talked about. So the, the biggest thing to take away is that the orbital frontal cortices, as I was talking about, the cingulate and so forth and the insula, they code the reward value. So is this a good food or is this a bad food? And then you're creating this map in your brain of what to do. As soon as I have this feeling, I look at this visual cue because what if, for example, it was a food picture, yet it was a food I just, I just hate. I don't know, like artichokes or something that, you know, whatever, you know, you just have a, such an aversion. One food picture could be massive pleasure to your brain and one could be disgust. Um, but then, as I said, when you get into the parietal lobes, the, the, the temporal gyrus and so forth, that's more kind of bypassing that for the non-food images. You don't have a value judgment you're placing on those. It, a ruler is a ruler. That's, that's not a threat or, or not. And so it immediately just kind of goes into more of the mechanical parts of your brain to process what to do with that. And likely it's not a big deal. You would just forget that picture because it has no impact on you. So one of, the, one of the cues, one of the keys is a cue in how much association do you place on that item? We're talking about pictures of food, but remember what I started with, even your thought of a food, because when you have a thought of a food or you see a picture of the food or that food is sitting in front of you on the kitchen counter, your brain doesn't care your brain is going to trigger a cascade of potential behaviors just because that region of your brain was stimulated. So again, even if I don't have that food right in front of me, if I see that TV commercial or I have that thought, I it just can't get the thought of Oreos out of my mind. I'm all day long. I can't stop thinking about them. What's probably going to happen? You know, if I, if I'm a typical person, I'm going to find a way to go get a freaking Oreo because I can't get it out of my mind unless I have a way to get it out of my mind. So let me read this final slide and then we'll, we'll, we'll chat a little bit. This study doesn't completely confirm or overlap other hunger imaging studies. That was one of their admissions. But the novel finding is that specific central nervous system areas are involved in processing of food versus non-food. 
and relate visual stimuli in different states of hunger and satiety. So this is where I did not put down all of the actual information in terms of the data. If you were to look at fed, not fed, hungry versus sated, food versus non-food, and you look at every single part of the brain I listed there, they actually have values for that, you know, quantified by the level of stimulation that each of those contexts put on that brain structure. So you can go look at all of those. Um, it's again, you just see the values, you know, plus one, plus two, plus 10. But the bottom line is that, of course, hunger matters. So when you're in a state of hunger, you're going to be uh, much more prone. I don't think that's breaking news. That's why I'm not putting a lot of emphasis on it. But I do think it's worth mentioning. It's important, as I was discussing with this client last night, who said, in the past, this is what I did. This is why I had success. She said, I get so busy now during the day, most days, I really only eat one meal at night. She said, literally today, I have consumed zero calories. I've had nothing to eat. And it was already six o'clock at night. That's somebody that I had to say, it's a pretty good idea to stay ahead of hunger. Because when your blood sugar gets that low, when your hypothalamus is screaming for food, you're going to have a much harder time sticking to your plan, sticking to good food, quality food, the right amounts of food. So again, that's a pretty benign part of the study. I think it's kind of a duh moment that in a state of hunger, you're going to have extra magnification of those symptoms. Um, but also we know the amygdala, which plays the biggest role in threat perception is going to, um, you know, just be more heightened during those times of, of hunger. Uh, but a larger CNS hunger response uh, in terms of our just evolutionary wiring is, is conserved in, or is, is the, the, the parts of our brain that are most primitive. And so that's another reason why the cerebellum, just part of the brainstem was engaged. These are old structures. These are things that drive us. Remember, we have more neuronal density in the tiny, tiny little part of our brainstem and cerebellum than the entire rest of our brain combined. Three times the amount of, of, of neurons there than the rest of our brain combined just because of the evolutionary age. And that means it just has more power. Those, those impulsive drives that may bypass us being able to rationalize our way in or out of them, they're just biological drives you know, food, sleep, safety, reproduction, bam. Why, why are they so hard to control? Because they're evolutionary drives. Um, they're just, they just have, have greater synaptic connection and, and power. Uh, you also tied to that, that structure runs, those connections run right through the thalamus and hypothalamus, which again, dopamine, the mesolimbic system, which we talk a lot about. Uh, and then, as they said, other studies confirm all of these findings, but theirs was just different in that they did it with this visual pictorial way. So 
there was some overlap in findings. There were some things that didn't quite match up because they just studied different things. But the, the big thing was, as I said, they, they, they found out that they could get these same drives without even having the food present. It could be just a picture. So what did we learn from this very weirdly interesting study? Something that I almost didn't even wanna bring to your attention. Um, of course, being empty or starving heightens that survival drive. We can imagine foods differently if we want. And I think that has to be my biggest take home is part of mindfulness training, part of staying in tune with reteaching yourself that I'm in control, I can do this, I can even change the structure of my brain is to stay on top of that at some level. You know, just like you don't exercise for a week and then say, ah, I'm good. I'm so healthy now. I never have to exercise again. You know, these are things that, that you know, what, what, what fires together, wires together. We, we need to keep those things sharp. And when we get to that, that insular cortex, if, if, if something like, you know, a healthy food, if every time you, you, you look at a meal, you say, oh my gosh, I, I cannot eat just another stupid, dry, disgusting chicken breast. This is so gross. What are you teaching your brain? What are you, what are you doing to the organic structure of your brain? You're strengthening that disgust reflex instead of just answering the question, how can I make this more palatable? How can I make a recipe that makes this taste better? If I truly don't like this food, why am I eating it? Why not get a different food that's still high quality? So those are the kind of things that we can kind of reinforce that will strengthen our good behavior. So I, uh, I think this had some value. It, again, just as a reminder in, in how much control we have over our brain and then our brain automatically over our behavior. But uh, let me hear from you guys. What, what questions do you have? Thoughts, questions, anything at all? I think that was it. Yep, last slide. I'm going to stop my share here as you guys queue up. Kevin, what were you talking about? Nice going. That's hot. What are you talking about? Go ahead. Come on. You got to gotta unmute now. So the recording was your, you know, the... Oh, that's what the nice going is referring to. And the hot that's hot comma is referring to the ruler non-food. <laughs> I, I didn't see it in real time. So I didn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, what do you think? You're a, you're a, you're a science guy. You're a professor. What's uh, what value do you think this gives you for teaching nutrition to clients or students? I can't say it's, it's surprising or shockingly new. Uh, not to, yeah, not to us, just because obviously we're biased and do this, but you know, there's there's always a there's the practical component when it comes to thinking of safe, non-safe, etc. And there's obviously the behavioral, emotional component. That's obviously the hard part in terms of behavior change. But you know, you you have both because in our in our context, food is meaningful, but it's also necessary for survival. So you're going to have both those components and to validate what this has said. And I'm sure others, I would imagine other studies have long before. Otherwise, I don't know why I knew of this prior to, but um, to 
to be shocked at when we don't eat all day and have that heightened sense of, of, you know, of, of, of hunger and to now respond in such a way, much like if you're hypervigilant and always in a stressful state and you overcompensate by, you know, eating more or eating in haste, is it that surprising? You know, if that's the emotional response and behavior we have created or fall into, is it that surprising? And I wouldn't think it is, but, you know, that's a, it's far too easy to say, fix it, you know, stop stressing so much. It's obviously not that simple, but that's the hard part of neuroplasticity is to change those mechanics. Um, but it echoes what you have said previously with, you know, the physiology and the psychology of, of eating that you still have to understand the language of nutrition and the, the basic mechanics of how we eat, when we eat and all the structure of, of nutrition at that point. So it is both, you can't have one or the other. And that's why for ultimate success, you have to have both the functional and the, and the psychologic components of eating. And I think one thing that, that you may gloss over because of your academic knowledge is I go back to just the cognitive behavioral therapy principle that, you know, if you could name it, you can tame it. You know, if you can visualize something, you know, you, you can really visually address it better. So um, even though I did not do a great job of showing an entire like picture of a brain and saying, here, here is your insular cortex, here's your cingulate. Um, if you know those structures are there and you know that these behaviors emanate because of their stimulation and response, that's where proper mindfulness, I think the most effective, most powerful mindfulness comes in because even as part of a very guided visual meditation process, like if you're, if you're listening to somebody and they're saying, okay, imagine this, you know, this is one, one of the best I've ever heard. Dr. Dan Siegel talked about him in the past. He's the founder of interpersonal neurobiology has created an entire school at UCLA psychiatrist from Harvard. Um, you know, he has a guided meditation where he'll say, I physically want you to picture your brain. And he doesn't say, think of a, think of a, of you laying under a rainbow in a bed of flowers. He said, I want you to picture your brain. I want you to go under your skull, close your eyes right now. You're looking at your skull, go under your skull, go into your brain. I want you to imagine your brain under the surface of your brain. It's like this roiling sea, these 20 foot waves, the storm, the thunder is deafening. It's horrible. All of this stress in your life, like that's your brain. Now go a little bit deeper, go a little bit deeper. The sounds are getting softer. You can't see the waves anymore. And he takes people, it's almost like the magic school bus. He's taking them visually through their brain so that they can think about these structures and therefore, if you want to have some kind of autonomic control, if you want to have some better control, having those concrete things to imagine that are real, you know, biofeedback measurements show you have greater impact. It's not abstract or conceptual. I'm thinking of my hypothalamus. I'm thinking of this structure in my brain. And if I can literally go to Google images and find a picture and think, wow, like, here it is right in my brain, like that actually has influence. So anyway, that's, that's why I think, like, like you said, these, these are also what I saw as, yeah, these are not surprising concepts, 
But if we can realize that, you know, there are absolute specific parts of our brain that control this, we can therefore exert control back on them a little bit easier. I think it's, to me, it's analogous to the tangibility of metabolic positioning. Once you understand how fat loss is, can be tapped into more or less uh, by visualizing that process of buckets or however you want to use to describe it, it's a lot to me, it's, it's not only is it paramount just for that knowledge, but you can now see how you, your choices can move you along that, that continuum. And to me, I think that's what clients get the most out of it because now they see how their choices are tangible and can more or less help or hurt them. And in this instance, I see it's the same thing to have that visualization that there is a tangent, even if you can't physically see it uh, or whatever, but just just to have that tangible outlet, I think is that biofeedback that you're saying. Exactly. And Heather, it's great that you're here. I appreciate seeing you here. Um, I did on the very first slide have this, but I'm going to, you, you may miss it. I'm going to read it here. It's uh, the study is in the journal of obesity. It's the title is brain activity in hunger and satiety in exploratory visually stimulated fMRI study. It's by Furrer, F-U-H-R. R-E-R, Zizet, Z-Y-S-S-E-T, and Stumvoli, Stumvoll, S-T-U-M-V-O-L-L, so some German researchers. Uh, it was in, in 2012, Journal of Obesity, but I'll, I'll have this posted. You can see that later as well. I could just send you the direct, the direct link if you want. But uh, thank you very much, Kevin. Anybody else have any thoughts or questions? Anything that, uh, that this drives toward you, Lainey? I just have, I guess, anecdotal. I don't know. Well, I guess it's science too. So we had a house for women who were sexually trafficked. And so often our women would come to us from gorilla pimps. So gorilla pimps would often be the ones that actually didn't have control of what they ate and they would feed them. So we often were dealing with PTSD and a lot of it was food. And so we had one lady who couldn't eat or even smell Chinese food because her pimp would only order Chinese food. And so we were very fortunate. We had a neuro, she had a big long title, but we did brain remapping and biofeedback and whatnot. Um, and the coolest thing is they would map her brain and show her the section of her brain that was actually overactive. And then the other part that was underactive um, to show her, first of all, she wasn't batshit crazy, that it really was a something that was going on in her brain, which was great for me to teach the people in the community that you know it, it's real. Um, but the cooler thing was, we ended up getting to celebrate by going out for Chinese with her because we put together the plan with her neurologist and with her counselor and with us as a team, just kind of, it was cognitive stuff, but it was also, um, I don't know what all the name of this stuff is, but she would have leads on her head. We all did it, but leads on her head that would actually activate part of the brain that was underactive um, to kind of balance out that stuff so that she could actually practice the cognitive stuff because she couldn't practice the cognitive stuff because her brain had hijacked that part of her brain that said, no, this is dangerous, it, you know, and it, it triggered a bunch of other stuff. Um, so I think it's also could be helpful for coaches, not a coach, but for people who have an aversion to certain foods, whether it's broccoli or different foods that we know that can be good for us, there is cognitive, I mean, obviously they have PTSD, they probably should see a counselor, but um, there was cognitive things that we did to help her overcome her 
aversion or her, I mean, it really was a legitimate fear for food. So I totally agree with this study. It was not a, just like up my alley. So yeah, I think we have way more power with our brain if we just, um, I guess, tapped into it, but that's kind of cheesy. So. Awesome. That is so good. And, and your example of being able to watch the imaging and have these thoughts. So there are companies like Neuralink. Obviously, you guys know what Elon Musk is trying to do there. Uh, there are other companies doing similar things that already have applications of this technology in use. And so uh, without having to put actual electric leads in your brain tissue, they have these infrared type helmets that are measuring um, activity in the brain exactly like you're describing. And then they code it into an image on the screen. So literally with just this simple device in a lab without having to undergo, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in a, in a radiology department, imagine one day when like VR goggles, you can have one of these. And then for, instead of just meditating by relaxing or doing breath work, you can look at a screen and you're watching your brain work and you can literally train parts of your brain differently, just like you train in the gym. I mean, that's, that's going to change the world. Um, it, it's just, it's, that's, I, I know my, I know my connection. I got lost there again, but I mean that when we can yeah. do that, they, that's what it was. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, and it, she's doing it for sports and all different types of things. And it's, I think it's an underlooked practice because it, it's non-threatening. It's non-physical. You literally are watching a, some of the practices as you're watching a movie while it does the other stuff. So um, yeah, it's cool. Here's, I'll give you guys one, one little quick anecdote since you, you mentioned this Laney, and then I'll, I'll bring anybody else in who wants to chat. Um, when I was undergoing some, I guess it was cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety. And I was not only working with a therapist remotely, uh, but, you know, he was giving me some resources and so forth. And I was doing some self-study. I underwent a goal to learn self-hypnosis and it probably took at least six months, but I was able to, in a, in a state of just whatever, you know, I just, just, I couldn't sleep. You know, I was, I was, I wouldn't say hypervigilant or agitated, but I was having thoughts that were keeping me up. I could start this process that, that originally started with maybe a five or 10 minute exercise. And I got to the point where I could count to three and put myself to sleep. It was literally self-hypnosis, three breaths, and I was asleep. I, I did it in front of people. Um, and then once I had achieved that, I didn't feel the need for it because I didn't need it, right? So I stopped doing that and I don't think I could do it now. I mean, I, it, it, that did like help me navigate that part of my life, which was good. It was a skill I needed and, and it, it did its job. But just speaking to the point that these are structures you need to stay uh, in motion with and keep in play if you want them, um, that self-talk matters and so forth. Like it's, you, you can achieve a lot, but then you can also lose it if you're not careful. But any other, any other thoughts or questions you guys have on this beautiful Friday, at least here in the Midwest, our warmest day of the year so far? 
All right. Well, I will, I will let you go at that. As I said, if you want a review of this, it'll be on our YouTube channel soon or on our site. Um, give Steve, our producer, probably till the end of the day. Um, I'll also send that link directly to you, Heather. Uh, Amanda, are you going to jump in? Yeah, I just wanted to ask you, because I'm driving, I'm on my way to Richmond right now. Can you post um, this? Because I lost my connection a lot. Okay. And I would like to, yeah, re-listen to the, um, the research study. Okay, will do.